0: Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Alisa Wad, I, I, you just blew me, blew me away a moment ago because I was going to introduce you as the Chief Operating Officer of Deree University, which probably everybody has heard of, but you just told me that you were just, you you are now, or you have been appointed and will become the president and CEO of DeRee University come September. Congratulations.
1: Thank you, Doug. Yep, that's right. It uh, uh, was announced uh, in July, and uh, it's uh, been here for 19 years. And if you ask me if I, uh, you know, 19 years ago, if I would have ever thought that this is where my, um, where my career would have sort of uh, ended up. I don't think that, I mean, while I've imagined that it, it could have, I, I don't think that I would have ever um, thought 19 years later, here I am, um, yeah, obviously, uh, super excited. September 5th is the official transition date.
0: I can see you just glowing. Well, what's amazing yeah. to me is you started out in admissions as an admissions officer, yeah. and you just worked hard and looked at the next rung and climbed it, and now you're you're at the, you're an apex predator.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a funny way to put it. That's that's that uh,
1: thank you, Doug. Thank you. Um, yeah.
0: Although I understand university presidents are more like mayors than they are CEOs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that that yes, yes, that's a good way to describe it as well. Uh yeah, started out uh at DeVry in 2004 actually. So um I say 19 years, it's kind of 19 and a half years, uh really, um, as an admissions advisor. And uh, to your point, you know, sort of worked my way up. Uh, Uh, taking on increased levels of responsibility. And, um, you know, there were several roles that I didn't even apply for. It's just, you know, sort of you do good work, you bloom where you're planted, you get noticed, you get tapped, you move into the next role. And so I've been really fortunate since 2013 to be found, to to be put in a position where, you know, my work got noticed and I was uh, offered the next opportunity up through CEO.
0: (laughs) Wow so 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 give us a little a little bit more about your backstory, how you got into education and and from there what happened.
1: so uh, in um, so after graduating college, uh, I and by the way, I went to college for uh, small business management and entrepreneurship. I come from a family who's owned several franchise uh, uh, organizations and um, you know, I always thought, I'm open up my own business. I'm going to run my own company. <laughs> the, uh, the uh, illusions of grandeur uh, for, for someone that's in their, you know, teens and uh, soon to be twenties um, you know, life's not that, that, that simple. And so I uh, quickly uh, realized that I probably need to get a full-time job as I think through that plan and, you know, pay off student loans, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, what do I want to do with my career? And I've always loved helping people. I've, uh, Love to volunteer. And I'm like, you know, I want to find something that allows me to do good work for others while feeling fulfilled in my day to day role. And so um, the opportunity to work in education uh, came about and, uh, you know, I didn't want to. I, I love the collegiate environment. Uh, I did a lot of volunteer work uh, at my um, uh when I when I uh, went through my undergraduate uh, program uh, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and you know I thought, wow, why not work at a university? Now, fast forward to having conversations with individuals about where I can possibly get my foot in the door, and a conversation came about where the opportunity uh, at DeVry University um, was open uh, for an admissions advisor back in 2004, and so um, you know uh, loved what I did because I got to meet so many new. Um, people through conversations uh, about you know what they're looking to do with their with, with their um, careers and then you know sort of placing them in the right program which goes to sort of the the conversation we're going to have today of how why listening is so important in this industry um, and you know getting to know so many people and then really truly seeing how much my um, uh, role impacted lives of others in a good way you graduate, you get a better job. You provide um, you provide for your family, or you know you're able to sort of go off on your own if you're you know 18, 19 years old, getting an education and and you know sort of creating your own life. Uh, so um, you know I never look back. I, I love to help people, and so um, that's led me to stay at DeVry University and work my way up through uh, the ranks.
0: <laughs> Boy, I guess by golly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you sit here today, I mean, you're at the very top uh, of the administration of a very large organization. What is it that gets you really excited and out of bed in the morning?
1: I would say having the opportunity to work directly with partners, because this is this is very much a, you know, we work with students, but we also work with partners across multiple industries to sort of understand what they need in their workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, In the workplace. And so and then, uh, you know, working with the administration and the team here at DeVry to make sure that we're building our curriculum, our programs to meet those needs. Uh, And then an added bonus is seeing students enter the university without, you know, any background in higher education and successfully coming out, thriving in their careers. And I think it, it goes back to, um, you know, really sort of having a meaningful, um, uh, in, in making a meaningful impact on people's lives. And so, uh, you know, I think watching students thrive in the classroom and then equally important in the workplace uh, gets me out of bed in the morning.
0: Wow. So, so DeVry has, has both physical locations and also online presence, is that correct?
1: That is correct. And um, uh, I would say 90% of our learners are uh, attending online, but we have physical locations across uh, several different states. And, um, that, and, and, and that footprint allows us to support students the way they wanna learn, which is really important for us. Right. Now, you may be an online student in one semester, but then there may be a challenging course that you would want to possibly attend on-site where you can get some more uh, um, hands-on support from from a faculty member and others in the classroom live. And so, um, and we do offer uh, both undergrad and grad programs. Uh, We say DeVry University, but um, we also operate the Keller Graduate School of Management, uh, teaching undergrad and grad degrees in technology business and health, both to your point, online and on-site.
0: I am. I'm a chair of the board of trustees of our local law school and have been for many years. And the, the thought came to me out of the blue. How do you manage your accreditation? With in so many multiple locations, do you have to get multiple accreditations or can do you just get one and it's good for everywhere? So
1: we are accredited by the Higher Learning Commission um, and that accreditation um, is for DeVry University as a whole. Uh, So we manage it through the Higher Learning Commission. Um, We do have programmatic accreditations. um, And so those are managed similarly. It's not by location. It's uh, at the university level managed through. um, It takes an army. Um, So uh, there's uh, our uh, chief uh, academic officer and provost sort of manages the relationships um, with our accreditors uh, alongside our regulatory affairs team. And then when I say it takes a, an army in a village, we all sort of support with documentation showing when we're up for reaffirmation and we're up for um, discussions with our accreditors showing um, the good work that we're doing here at rise. So uh, it you know it's it's an enterprise wide effort, however managed uh, within the uh, academics function primarily. But yeah, it's uh, a <laughs> we have several locations, and um, you know there could be visits that pop up with you know. Within each of those locations, but it's it's really through that that you know higher learning commission accreditation. What is
0: it? What is it about you that's unique that you bring to the table that's allowed you to succeed in the way that you have? Passion,
1: persistence. <laughs> I, mean, I can. I, can, um, I have a, a, an incredible amount of passion for our mission. Um, I feel like uh, you know, if you love what you do and you believe in the mission, um, you will thrive in your career. And so I've, ne- you know, the passion that I had in, you know, day one advising students on the front line has never been lost as I moved up through the organization. And I will say that that experience um, has been incredibly influential in my career. Hmm. Getting to have those conversations, getting to know our population of learners in a more intimate way, has allowed me to sort of, as I've, you know, grown in my career at DeVry, make decisions that keep our learners at the center. And um, so I'll say passion. And I say persistence because, um, you know, it takes, uh, you know, there's, there's always setbacks, there's always challenges, there's always, um, uh, you know, dynamics that shift in the world that we live in, and- um,
0: It's an academic setting. It's (laughs) by any other name.
1: (laughs) Honestly, like, you know, there's always something that you're looking at, you know, that that, that big challenge or big problem, you're like, wow, that's unprecedented. Um, I didn't think that I'd have to deal with uh, having to sort of figure out how to navigate this. COVID's a great example. Who would have thought? our country would have been shut down for, you know, close to a year. We'd have to pivot all of our operating procedures. Um, You know, we, we, we were online prior to COVID. So, you know, it it wasn't as difficult for DeVry to make that, take that leap and pivot, but I watched several other organizations um, uh, grapple with that, with that challenge. And so um, I think, you know, just having to having to navigate those situations um, has always sort of been, uh, I'll say it's fun. It's fun though, because you don't know what you know until you're thrown into an environment where you have to sort of relearn and think through things a little bit differently.
0: (laughs) Imagine taking a small regional law school and going from in-class to online overnight.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that's, that was the story for so many educators, right? Um, you know, we were really lucky. We were really lucky. Uh, and our staff was, uh, Accustomed to working remote, so and we had the technology in place and the infrastructure in place. But yeah, there were <laughs> a lot of fellow travelers, a lot of friends that I have in the in the industry that um, were were looking for support, and we did actually, when asked and even proactively, offer support and expertise and guidance um, to others within uh, higher education. Wow, good Tough time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was quite a time. And what's so interesting, at least with our little law school, is. We never really intended to, to have an online segment, but now we realize that we have to have an online segment so we've invested in all the technology for our classrooms, and uh, it turns out that a law school in Southern California closed down and we we were accepting some of those students and the only way they could attend is you know we're 200 miles north is they are going to be able to do it online and they they may never they may never come to our campus but um, it's pretty interesting but, look at
1: that taking uh uncertainty in a challenging situation and innovating
0: through it that's right and we we weren't the only ones just as you said i mean everybody was forced to (laughs) everybody was forced to exactly well as you know the the title of this show is listening with leaders and that's because as a lawyer turned peacemaker i think that listening is a foundational skill of life tell me about listening in your career how important is it
1: so um You know, I, I, I sort of touched on this earlier, uh, understanding the needs of those you're serving is so important. You can't understand needs without listening. So, um, and look, I get, uh, everyone is busy and there's always an urge to sort of multitask when listening. Uh, and in our, in our, you know, line of work in our industry, um, it's one of the most important skills actually. And the importance cannot be overstated, Doug. Whether you're a faculty member, an advisor offering guidance, like I was early in my career, um, an administrator, no matter the role, listening is a huge driver of outcomes in student success. And to unpack that a bit further, um, you know, it's important to understand students, what their goals are, where they need tailored support, especially in an online environment. When you listen, you're building trust, you're building rapport with your students, and then back to partners. When you listen to partners, you're learning from them, and you're properly addressing their needs um, through the product that we offer. So, uh, you know, I, I cannot overstate enough how important listening is. Uh, and, and and to that partner, uh, to, to to further sort of emphasize the importance of partnerships and listening to industry leaders. You know, it's important to listen to your customers. It's important to listen to students in in our line of work. Um, But when we listen to industry leaders, it helps us inform our curriculum, which then leads to relevant programs uh, and a really relevant product that leads to strong student outcomes, i.e. placement, employment rates, et cetera. And so we try to do that through national advisory councils, um and uh we actually have a president's advisory council on technology in the economy. Uh we are a um uh higher education institution that um uh really likes to infuse technology into all of our uh curriculum, whether it's in business, healthcare, or in our tech programs, obviously, uh, because we believe that um technology always and will continue to evolve and shape the way we work.
0: Hmm. Um, how do you learn how to listen?
1: How did I learn how to listen? So (laughs) practice, 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 practice. Um, uh, I think, you know, being an admissions advisor, that's one of the first things you learn is how to listen. Um, I was taught very early on, 80% of your time talking to someone is listening, 20% is responding. So I live by that 80-20 rule. Um, And I try to be actively engaged in conversations, showing interest and giving those I'm speaking with my full undivided attention, Mm -hmm. which by the way, in remote environments can be so so difficult to do because there's always that urge to multitask, always that urge to do, you know, something on the side Um, versus in person. It's kind of hard to do that. Um, And uh, you know, I, I learned early on in my career, avoid the desire to interrupt because when you interrupt, even if you have something to say, Around, even if you're agreeing with the person that you're listening to, you don't want to make that person speaking feel unheard. Um, and uh, and so, you know, learn that learn that early on in my career. And as I've navigated um, these increased levels of responsibility in my career as I moved up through DeVry, um, I've learned to avoid making assumptions. Ah, um, <laughs> <me>. <laughs> because, look, you got to listen to the entire message. Um, I don't make assumptions, I like to paraphr- paraphrase and clarify so I can confirm my understanding before reacting. And that's an art, by the way, um, it's it's really difficult to do, but uh, uh, like I said, practice, practice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I divide, uh, I just had an insight last week about listening and I I categorize listening now into two categories, type one listening and type two listening. Type one listening is listener focused. That's where we're trying to gather information We want to make the speaker feel heard, but we're really trying to gather information so we can make decisions, give advice or whatever. Type two decision, type two listening is very different. Type two listening is all speaker focused. And when we're in type two listening, we are listening from the speaker's frame of reference. And we are trying, our goal is to validate the words, the meaning and the emotions that the speaker is experiencing while the speaker is talking to us. It's a completely different form of listening than type one. And so it's just interesting to hear it as I, as I listen to you. You've got, you've got a little bit of a meld of both of them in there, it sounds like. There are times when you're listening, you're you know, you gathering information, you're, you're gathering perspectives and viewpoints because you have to make a decision or you're you're gathering information. And then there are times when it's important that the speaker feel validated and heard. And so it sounds like you're you kind of using a little bit of everything, um, in your listening. Does that resonate with you? I'm just testing out my theory. It,
1: it absolutely does, actually. And I've never heard it described as type one, type two, but that's that's precisely what you know when, when you when you look at the two um, different scenarios. That's precisely sort of what you're doing. It you know it's all situational, of course. Of course. Uh, and you know, as a CEO and just even a leader in general. Doug, I think you need to be able to know when to be the type one listener and when to be the type two listener. Uh, And, you know, I I find myself in the type one mode more often than the type two mode, um, because I am trying to sort of seek first to understand and make the right decision based on all the input and the facts um, being presented. And so, uh, no, it, it definitely, absolutely resonates. And I, I'm, I'm stealing that, by the way.
0: <laughs> go ahead. Uh, I, I wrote a little LinkedIn post on it last Friday, so you can go okay, check. Great, great. Yes. Um, well, that, what I've learned, I mean, I've been I've taught reflective listening, and especially uh, a type of type two listening called affect labeling, where you're listening to emotions, not words, for for almost two decades now. And um, the power the power of it is that. When you are doing type two listening, you can calm any angry person in 90 seconds or less. You can build instant loyalty, instant trust, instant engagement in personal relationships, in, instant intimacy. So it has a unique power unto itself that type one listening doesn't have. And you're absolutely right. Knowing when is it appropriate to use type one, when is it appropriate to use type two, is is I think a foundational skill. Um, that we really need to spend more time talking about with people and getting more and more people educated about how important all of this all of this is. Um, in,
1: in in the type two listening, also, um, you know, is sort of a motivating approach for the for for the folks that you're listening to, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, allowing for part of it is a. Uh, being, you know, having a high EQ and being able to read a room and being able to read the, 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 the tone. And um, uh, I think, you know, in that type two scenario, you've got, when you take that approach, you've got a diverse group of perspectives that you're listening to, right? And when you take that approach, people feel heard, people feel understood, people feel appreciated. And, and, and so I, I, you know, I, I think it's a lever that's not pulled enough.
0: Yeah, you become the leader that everyone wants to follow. That's uh, how more powerful it is. I'm the co-founder of the Prison of Peace Project, uh, which uh, I co-founded. I read about that. <laughs> the we we didn't call it Type Two Listening at the time because I hadn't my thinking hadn't been matured matured enough on it. But we started the project back in 2010 in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, and tra- started wow. training 15 women how to be peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. And two and a half years later. We got an unsolicited letter from the warden saying that the prison was completely quiet as a result of prison peace. Um, just teaching that this foundational skill, along with a whole bunch of other skills. But this was foundational. First skill we t- taught the women was how to listen. And the other lesson that came out of that, you talk about EQ and emotional intelligence. You can just imagine 15 women who are all serving life and long-term sentences. They pretty much all have killed somebody. Uh, that's why they're in there. And they're flatlined. <laughs> When it comes to that kind of stuff. They they in five weeks, they completely changed as human beings. They went from being these black thorns to these beautiful roses. I love that. It only took five weeks of training, listening to emotions, reflecting emotions, for them to get in touch with their own humanity and start developing very, very high levels of, of emotional intelligence. And what I've learned in the years since then is that as you practice type two listening, you actually develop your own emotional intelligence effortlessly. You don't have to go back to school. You practice this one skill and completely change who you are as a human being. And I have wist- yeah. witnessed it in, with teaching thousands and thousands of incarcerated people, as well as senior analysts at the Congressional Budget Office, how to de-escalate members of Congress.
1: <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, I did, I did read about your work, um, and you have an incredibly impressive back, background, and you've done amazing things. in the data points behind the impact, oh. incredible incredible one of which you just shared and uh and and, and that reminds me of uh, you know another point that I, I want to bring up is you you know you the training that you've done and the work that you've done really sort of centers around creating a safe environment for people um and honestly like you know how much that matters
0: oh it's everything you saw the google study they can't yes. ago. Emotional safety is the number one driver of the top one tenth of one percent top teams at Google. The only factor that the researchers could find that was universal was psychological or emotional safety.
1: Yep, yep, and and that's such an important factor. Nobody- um, <laughs> under indexed, under indexed factor. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 you ever watch Ted Lasso? No. Okay, so there's this line in Ted Lasso, and it's be curious, not judgmental. There we go. And being judgmental means you're reacting quickly, and you don't wait for that person to be heard. You don't ask questions. I often find that asking questions is sort of almost, um, you know, if you're confused, instead of, you know, assuming what you heard, ask a question, get, you know, get clarification. That's being curious, and so I, I I've stolen that line, <laughs> just like I'm stealing type one and type two. Um, and you know, I feel like that's helped in driving the creation of safe environments and the psycho- psychological safety um, component of the work that we do when 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 working with teams and working with students in the classroom. Um, you want people to feel heard and supported. Right. You want to drive engagement. You want to drive innovation. You want to bring for- you have people bring forward ideas. They have to feel safe.
0: Right you feel safe. People, so many people, especially C-level people, don't get that. you do, obviously. Um, here's an I'll give you an interesting uh, uh, skill differentiation. In type two listening, you never ask a question. You only ask questions in type one listening because in type two listening, you're listening from a speaker's frame of reference, so that means you're going to be reflecting the speaker's words, meaning and emotions with a you statement and never whatever they say is whatever they say, they own it all you're doing is reflecting it back to them. Isn't that interesting? And that one, is interesting. You, and it, you're an appreciative inquiry, right? You're, you're trying to learn. Like what a great
1: position for that presenter, because they're, they're, they're not up there trying to, you know, impress their audience They're up there trying to tell their story and their audience is just reacting, you know? based on what they're hearing, so I like it. I like it a lot, and uh, like I said, I look forward to reading up on that.
0: <laughs> okay, well, we've kind of come to the end of our time here. I have one more question for you. What is one thing about yourself, Elise, that we would never, ever guess about unless you revealed it to us? So um,
1: I will say that I am, you know, back to the persistence comment that I that that I, that I I made around, uh, no, so you know,
0: some some might call it stubborn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, stubborn. Okay, so here's so, you're spot on. Um, I uh, I like endurance sports, and so I am um, a marathon runner. I'm training right now for a century ride in Door County, Wisconsin, which is a hundred mile bike race. Um, and uh, back to the stubborn and uh, persistent uh, comment. Uh, I became a marathon runner in. Uh, 2019 after severely injuring myself in 2017 and being told that long distance running was not going to be in my future. So what did I do with that? I said, "Yeah, I'm going to prove you wrong." <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I had shattered my left ankle um, and had to have a reconstructive surgery. I have 10 screws in the plate in my ankle, um, and uh, you know went through intensive uh, physical therapy. Uh, I had a really good orthopedic surgeon and, uh, and I decided at that point, I'm going to run a marathon, trained for one in 2019, ran it, ran my second one in 2022. And uh, and now I'm switching over to biking. I'm going to flip back over to marathon uh, running again uh, here in the spring or fall of next year.
0: <laughs> so put up the red flag and you say, I'm at it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I've, I've always lived by the tell me I can't do something and I will prove well, you wrong. <laughs>
0: that's the worst thing to say, say to me. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'm in good company.
0: Absolutely. Well, Elise, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for your uh, for your time as well, Doug, and uh, for all of your insights. Uh, truly appreciate you and your work.
0: Thank you. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.com. Doug Knoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, DougKnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.